Welcome back to another episode of Revolution Recap Podcast. Here today with Brian O'Connell and Greg Johnstone of New England Soccer today, and I'm Sean Donahue. Uh, Revolution had their first game last weekend, a one nothing loss uh, to the Colorado Rapids in Colorado. This weekend, however, the Revolution's game against Orlando City, which was supposed to be their home opener, was postponed due to cold, which I don't think I've ever seen <laughs> before. Have you ever seen something like that, Brian? No, in fact, it's funny. It's it's funny because I actually um, reached out to the Revs and they said this might have been the first time it's ever been postponed due to cold. So I was actually looking for precedent within you know club history, um, you know. But it is it is very very unusual. I mean, I think we can all think of a few games that have been played in extremely cold temperatures. I, I think uh, 2013 MLS comes to mind. Uh, so um, yeah, it's really unusual, but. You know, I think we're uh, I think we're all the better for not having to go up there because well, it is is brutally cold down here. Well, I know as as being in the media and sitting in the press box, it doesn't affect us as much. But not as much. Uh, I, I definitely think they're doing the, the fans a favor by canceling this game, especially given how boring uh, Revolution homeowner openers have been recently, with frequently zero zero draws and, and other not so exciting games. So to sit out in the cold. Uh, and watch what usually isn't a very exciting game would not have been the best best way to spend a freezing, bitterly cold Saturday. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to talk about the uh, the formation here because that's been something of note going into this season um, where they, they finished last season with the 4-4-2 and had some success with it, but the 4-4-2 last season finished with Juan Aguadello and Kai Kamara up top. And personally, I thought the two of them looked pretty good together um, in that role and, and towards the end of the year. I mean, it started off with, uh, you know, obviously some growing pains, but the two of them seemed to be clicking pretty well. And then going into this preseason, obviously Juan Aguadello was away with the national team, so, you know, Heaps had to try something else for the beginning of preseason, and it was Lee Wynn and, and Kai Kamara, and I guess that worked decently well, and certainly um, when, when Juan Aguadello came back, which surprised me a bit, they kept Lee Wynn up top, um, and they played, you know, two, I, I know it was the Red Bulls who were playing, like, their, their C team because they had... Uh, CONCACAF Champions League game, and then Sporting Kansas City before that, who, you know, for whatever reason, didn't put out a very strong lineup. Um, and the offense had success against those two teams, but I think the case could be made that neither of those two teams that were out there were uh, MLS-quality teams they were playing against. Um, so I was a little bit surprised to see, uh, that, first of all, that Jay Heaps kept that idea going when Aguadella was back, but then that he played it in Colorado. Um, and to me, it didn't work out very well. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts were, or Brian, but it seemed like Lee Wynn being in that role as your main playmaker, generally, he didn't get many touches. No, he didn't. I think we even talked about it while we were watching the game, and it was just, it, he was basically like a, non, a non-entity in that game, and you just wondered, you know, I know that at, at the halftime, uh, at the uh, halftime interview with uh, with the broadcasting team, you know, I, I know that uh, Heaps was talking about trying to get him more involved, and maybe that was going to be the switch uh, maybe he was going to switch uh, when when in Agudelo, but um, yeah, in the first half he was he was basically non-existent. And it was actually like you said, it's kind of curious that he was that given the success they had last year with um, with Kamara uh, with Kamara and uh, and Agudelo, you know, up top, why why he would deviate from that? You know, like you said, you know, maybe it was because you know Agudelo didn't really get that much time during the preseason, and that kind of created an open opportunity for uh, when to. I guess take Ag- Agudelo's role, but like you said, like the level of competition that the first teamers faced in the preseason is just like a bad indication, a bad predictor because you know, like like you had said, they basically played Red Bulls too in the last game of the last game of the preseason and a second team Rapids team, you know, in the one before that. So um, it was a very curious move. Um, you know, who's to say that it wasn't wasn't done because uh, you know maybe uh, maybe he, uh, heaps had these had a different idea for maybe switching things up at halftime anyways and it was just a uh, an experiment that really hadn't gone according to plan in fact it didn't go according to plan but um, yeah I was actually a little surprised by that as well because you know Lee won in that role just doesn't it is, especially when you have Juan Agudelo at your at your disposal you know I get it if if Agudelo is not available but you had Agudelo available I just it was very very curious to see why why heaps went in that direction. Yeah, Greg, what did you think of the, the formation shift yeah. in the Revs? Uh, I'm with you guys, too, where I can understand playing Win up top because he's done that before and he's shown he can do it. Um, uh, my confusion is why move Aguadelo back into the playmaker role instead of playing him up top with Kamara, which is where you would assume he, he would be best utilized. Um, in my mind, Win is best utilized as the playmaker and Aguadelo is best utilized up top, so... 
the switch in my mind didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I think it kind of showed now, I mean, it's one game against the Rapids who have a very strong back four. And so, you know, we, we don't have a, a much of a sample size to prove it's um, totally useless and ineffective, but um, I, I didn't, I didn't see anything positive come from it. And I'd be um, a little surprised if this is a long-term uh, lineup for the revolution, just because I don't see the logic in it. Yeah, it makes it makes no sense to me. And I think looking at the final numbers, Lee Wen had twenty three touches, uh, which for for the guy that you know, has led the team in assists with ten each of the past two years uh, is, is a is a really bad sign. Uh, even Kai Kamara, I know Lee Wen was subbed out early, but I think even Kai Kamara had more touches than Lee Wen um, by the time Lee was subbed out. Uh, so it's it's you know it's, it's an interesting experiment by Jay Heaps. I think the early returns were not good. Um, I would have been very curious to see what he would have done this weekend uh, against Orlando, especially with you know Lee Wen's status being questionable. Um, now they've you know bought themselves more time for him to be back, and I would I, I don't know Brian if you've gotten the impression, but it seems like probably good chance that Lee Wen's back next weekend because it seemed like they were on, on the fence about whether he'd be back this weekend. Yeah, it seemed like he was. I mean, Heap said he was day to day, and I take that to mean you know he was there. There was probably a a decent chance that even if he was ready, he wasn't going to be a hundred percent. Um, but I think that they, I think that today's, uh, the postponement of today's game definitely played into the refs' hands in terms of his health. So um, I think, uh, I think there was some talk that if it wasn't, that if Wynn wasn't going to go, it, you could have seen uh, Kellen Rowe in that role, which, you know, theoretically, you know, uh, in, in my opinion, I think that probably would have prompted Heaps to move up Agadello because if you have Agadello <laughs> still, Still in that role, still as like uh, still as like the ten, and having Lee Lee win, you know, as the second striker, just really, I mean, I mean, Kellen Rose, the second striker, really doesn't make sense. So, um, I guess maybe for better or worse, we'll never know. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, it'd be interesting. I I think that this week, I, I definitely bought bought them more time for Lee to get healthy, and I guess we'll find out next week when they play Dallas whether or not we see him back in that same role, or if he's uh, or if, uh, Heaps makes the switch with uh, Agadello and uh, and. Um, in uh, win. Well, this kind of brings up to another point, um, another question that I was curious about. Um, is we, you know, again, we saw them play two forwards all in the preseason, uh, but going into Colorado, I, I thought they might have played a more conservative lineup, uh, being that that was you know obviously a very difficult game at altitude, the first game of the season. Um, Colorado, not a great offensive team, but it, I was a little bit surprised that the Revolution didn't go into that one more defensive. Obviously, you know, defense wasn't their big issue in this game. They gave up the you know the one bad set piece goal. Uh, it was offense that was the issue, uh, but going into Dallas, a team that you know, unlike Colorado, has an extremely strong attacking core um, and scored a lot of goals last year. Um, you think there's any chance we see Jay Heaps switch to you know the, back to the four five one, or is, are, are we going to see this you know aggressive four four two with just the one defensive midfielder, um, even on road games like this? I don't know, Greg. What, what are your thoughts? Is, is it smart to go into a you know game like Dallas and, and play that aggressive lineup, even though it didn't necessarily look too aggressive actually on the field last weekend? <laughs> well, um, it certainly would make a lot of sense to go back to the four-five-one and maybe pair Kawasi with Caldwell. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to do it because I think it might be early in the season and they might not want to mix it up too much. Um, but on the road at Dallas, regardless of what formation you come out, it, it's going to be a, a tough ask. Um, and I think a lot of it, too, also plays into the, the status of Lee win, although I think we can expect him to be back next week, as Brian just said. So uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Kawasi and Caldwell both on the field both times to kind of support the defense. But um, overall, if I was to pr- make a prediction, I would think that we're going to run out the same uh, 4-4-2. Um, the back line uh, seemed fine in Colorado. They only gave up that one kind of fluky goal that, um, as I say, very fluky and uh, just hung around in the box a little bit too long. Uh, the defense I thought looked pretty solid all the way around. So um, I don't think they're going to try to mix it up too much this early in the season. I thought the defense did look good. It was the offense that they needs work on. But Dallas yes. is going to be. A, a, I think I think we'd all agree that for the Rebels to get any points out of Dallas would be a, a, an impressive an impressive result, given how good Dallas has been and given that they opened the season with a, a win at a Los Angeles team that I think many people expect to you know, be pretty good this year. Um, and that that'll be a, a very tough ask. And going into that game with this week off, 
I'm curious on both of your thoughts on whether that hurts this team or, or helps the team. Because to me, this early in the season, having a week off when your team's just trying to get fitness and just trying to get form is a, a, really a bad thing. I don't know, Brian, what are your thoughts? Like for, for this game, is, is that going to really hurt them that you know they've only had one competitive match going to Dallas now this week off? Um, I think it doesn't hurt them. I think it may actually play into their play into their favor because because not only with the with the health of Wynn, but I also I also think it helps with you know one more week of training with Angua and and Del Mayo. And I think um, you know if you're gonna stop Dal- if you're gonna get points out of Dallas, you really need them to be on their game. So I think you give them one more. I know I know game action is different from training action, but it does it does give them a little bit more time on the on the training pitch, so to speak, with uh, with them getting getting together their communication, um, and you know, I think that I think it'll help the Revs in that respect. Um, and you know, I think, like you said, I mean, there is there is the you know, you'd rather play keep playing through, um, but given that guys do they are a little bit, they are a little bit banged up, and that you know, I was actually kind of surprised that Angola went the entire ninety in, yeah. at Colorado, so I think that was mm-hmm. uh, that was impressive by him. Um, especially playing at altitude, so I think um, I think it, I think it may actually play into the Revs' favor. It also gives them like an, it also gives them another week to kind of game plan. Um, you know, they've been game planning. Probably, I know that heaps in the coaching staff is probably game planning right now. And they'll pay t- close attention to this to tonight's uh, Sporting KC Dallas game. Um, and uh, you know, I think you know, given how how talented Dallas is, I think it may actually play into their favor. Instead of uh, repeating everything Brian says, because everything he said is is true, um, in that that it will it will help the Revs get on the same page and and um, that defense. I think we the, that center back pairing had I think ninety minutes of game action in the preseason, and so they're still getting familiar with each other. Um, but I think it, it kind of balances out, and I think it's going to have a probably zero effect overall um, because for whatever coordination you're going to have with. Um, the defense and uh, however uh, much it helps win having an extra week off. Uh, I think they would have really benefited from playing Orlando this week and getting some results at home. Um, starting the season out at Colorado and then at Dallas is uh, a very tough uh, beginning to the season. And I think if they were able to squeeze a win in at home against Orlando, which is a matchup I really like, Orlando would have been coming here without Kaká. Um I think uh, three points would have really helped them build some momentum going into that Dallas game. Yeah, no, I think the same thing. And to, I mean, to, to me, it's hard for me to see anything other than the Revs coming out of these first two games now with, with zero points because Dallas is just the class of the league and one of my favorites to win a Moscow this year. Um, so I, I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. And the Orlando game, as you said, was favorable for the Revolution with Kaká out. And now in September, um, he'll probably be, be, be back and he's... You know, their best player along with Kyle Aaron. So that's going to be um, a, a much tougher game now when that comes up in September and that team has more time under their belt and they have, you know, in theory, healthy Kaka, uh, although at his age, <laughs> who knows? Um, but yeah, I, but that does, I do want to go back to the defensive pairing. So you, you touched a little bit on that and, and how they've worked out so far. Um, and like you said, I thought the two of them were pretty good in the first game. Uh, you know, a few moments where communication wasn't there as expected, but better than I would have guessed from just having played you know, around 90 minutes together in preseason. And I think there's you know, a lot to be excited about for Revolution fans going forward with those two center backs, especially given how bad the center back pairing for the Revolution had been the past couple of years when it was you know, Gonsalves not playing at his best and a random assortment of guys like Woodbury and Javon Watson. If these two guys can stay healthy, De La May and Anguilla, I think that could be you know, huge for the Revolution this season. Um, Brian, what, what did you think of their play in that first game? Obviously, only so much you can take. Colorado are not a great offensive team, but um, only gave up that one set piece goal. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sean. I think uh, I was also very impressed by the way that that they were uh, that they kind of for, uh, formed their their partnership. And uh, you know, I just go back to um, you know, I was kind of waiting for that like one mistake, that glaring mistake where it's like, oh man, these guys really just you know they they it, it's just due to an experience with uh, with playing with playing together. Um, but you, you didn't really see that, and um, you know, I think it's I think it's certainly bodes well, especially for the early part of the season. Um, you know, and, and given the fact that they really hadn't had much time training, much time playing during the preseason, I think it was a, a really bright start for that partnership going uh, coming out of Colorado, and you know, just giving up that one goal, which was basically kind of a kind of a fluky goal. I mean, obviously the the Revs probably could have done better to defend it, but um, aside from that, I mean, I think uh, I think. 
on the whole, they were they. It was a positive positive first game, and uh, if they can both stay healthy, I think um, I think that's a huge that's a huge question mark that isn't so much of a question mark um, anymore, especially after the last two years where, like you had said, we'd seen you know we'd seen Farrell with Gonzalez, we'd seen Watson with Gonzalez, we'd seen Woodbury with Gonzalez. I mean, it really was just kind of like a, kind of like a, ro- a rotation as to who was playing right next to uh, right next to Jogo. So. Um, to see some stability and to see some early and see to see that stability get off to a good start, I think I think it's a def, definitely a promising promising uh, uh, it's definitely a promising development for the Revs. And once they get Kowasi back, I think uh, I think that's when you really start if all all three of these guys play to the potential, really start seeing the uh, the defense start to mesh. Well, then one other guy we should mention is, is Cody Cropper because I think last time we did this, we had no idea who was going to be the the Revs starting goalkeeper. Um, probably lean towards Knighton, if anything. Um, now, you know, Shuttleworth's gone, and we got Cody Cropper as as the starter. Uh, I thought he had a good game. There was one or two. I know there was one moment where he like dove for a ball, I think, and, and missed. It wasn't uh, anything that was too dangerous, but we maybe didn't look like he was a hundred percent confident making making the start. But overall, I thought he had a very good game. Um, and again, to see him back there making you know just a second start for the Revolution and his you know, first start. I think he. I think the three of those guys, the two center backs and Cropper, played even less than ninety minutes together in the preseason. Um, but that was that was impressive to see what he could do as a starter, um, given that you know potentially the full time role this season. Uh, a good start for him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd say so. I, I don't think he was tested a whole lot in the Colorado game though. Um, so, but between the season ender last season and uh, this game in, in Colorado, he seems like a quality goalkeeper who's going to be able to hold down that number one job for the whole season and uh, I, I think the revolution made the right decision um sending out bobby to minnesota and and uh, rolling with cropper as the number one I, I think it's really promising and uh, who knows he might be the the keeper of the, the future yeah i think uh, i think he looks solid and um and i think the most uh you know like we had all we we had all talked about on this podcast before we all we all assumed that cropper was gone you know once uh once the expansion draft and uh, the offseason were going to roll around, that somehow they'd find a way to deal them, and uh, you know, look smart by them by by holding on to them by holding on to him, and uh, and dealing Shuttleworth instead. And I think it was pretty, I think it was pretty telling that uh, for the first game of the season that uh, that um, Shuttleworth wasn't even in the 18 for Minnesota. So um, I know there's some there's a little bit of a debate on Twitter as to you know how good how good Shuttleworth really was, and I think a lot of it was kind of unfair because. Um, there was a time in which he was actually he was decent. Was he was he an elite goalkeeper? Did he show did he show qualities of an elite goalkeeper? Hardly. Um, but I think he was serviceable. He he was what he was, and um, you know he was he was a decent decent goalkeeper. But I think uh, I think Cropper has way more upside than Shawar, especially this especially at the at the stage of his career. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean there was talk a few years ago that Cropper could have a future on the on the national team and didn't pan out as well as I think people had hoped with him in England, you know, dropping down to lower regions and struggling to hold down a starting spot. But there's, you know, there's always been so much potential with this guy. Uh, he's certainly got the, the right build to be a, a successful goalkeeper and is so young. What is he? I think he's 23 now. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of opportunities for him to hold that starting spot for, for years to come and maybe even do more. I think there's a, an opening right now with the national team for a keeper of the future. And it's way too early to be talking about that with Cropper after two games, but um, you know, it's something down the line. Maybe you could live up to that potential and, and get a shot there. Uh, so that's very exciting to have a, a young keeper like that. Um, but, you know, it, I think, again, brings to another topic we want to talk about is, is leadership. And Cropper was very vocal in this game. And he has a reputation as being a, a pretty vocal goalkeeper. Um, but, you know, in other areas of leadership, there's been some controversy this, this past week with A.J. Soares tweeting during the game that Chris Tierney probably should have been captain, something along those lines because of, you know, his history here and how long he's been playing for the Revolution and being a local guy. Um, but Lee Wynn was, was named captain in the first game. Uh, and I think to some of us, it was a, a bit of an odd choice. Uh, to me, at least, it never seemed like Lee was one of the more vocal guys on the field. Uh, I don't know, but what, what were your impressions, Greg, as far as Lee Wynn getting that role? Um, and, and who did you think might get that role going into the season? Yeah, I, I wasn't totally surprised about Lee Wynn um, being captain. I think he's been the, the Revolution's captain a few times um, when Gonzalez was out, if I remember correctly. I, I think I remember him um, uh, being team captain while uh, uh, 
I think it was last season. It might have been two years ago, but um, I, I thought I think AJ Source has a, a lot of great points about Chris Tierney. He's been on the team for a, a long time, and uh, you know Source has played with Tierney, so um, obviously him feeling so passionate about it, he must feel t- uh, Tierney is uh, some somewhat of a leader uh, of that back group. Um, I, I think he's played multiple positions and he's contributed a lot to the club and the league has gotten a lot better and he's always been able to uh, put up quality performances for the revs for about a decade now so um you know i, I think he's certainly earned the the chance to be team captain um but i also think and we've kind of touched about on this before there isn't really a surefire person that we th- think should be team captain and maybe you guys disagree with me but i'm not totally sure if there is that 100 percent vocal leader uh, clear-cut leader of the team. Um, so I, I think that's what kind of is kind of causing this controversy that um, whoever people think should be the captain of the team, it's really, there's really no perfect answer and it's really best available type of a, a, a debate. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point, Greg. There's really no obvious choice. I mean, in the past, there there'd always kind of been an obvious choice, whether it was Shari Joseph or whether it was Matt Reese. Or even like most recently with Jermaine Jones, I think there was those guys. There was really absolutely no doubt that those were those were your guys. Those those were those were the guys who you know there was no debate. They should they should be wearing the armband. So I think the fact that there's really no obvious choice kind of speaks to I don't know. I don't want to say lack of leadership, but I do want to say like there's it's definitely not as strong as it's been in the past. And I think we kind of saw that last year. I think we kind of saw that where um, you know even though Lee is you know a guy who because of his experience, um, maybe maybe does have maybe deserves consideration. I you know to me he's not my first choice, um, and I, you know and I can't even say that you know my first choice actually right now I'd probably say would be Delmea, and I wouldn't be like I wouldn't stake my life to that at all because I just think that you know there really is it's too early to tell with him, um, and I only say Delmea because of the fact that you know he's really raved about him during training camp and that. He had previously served as captain for his club team, and um, so he does kind of have that leadership background. But um, I think the fact that there's really no, you know, no obvious choice for captain kind of speaks to maybe like a lack of a lack of leadership, and uh, and you maybe need somebody who does who needs who does need to step up. And who knows, maybe maybe when did step up behind the scenes when he was given the captainship last year after he was snubbed for Copa America. Um, but you know, on the field, it's it's just hard to see really one guy and say that's the guy. Whereas that was there was no question when it, when you saw Jermaine Jones on the field, you said that was the guy. It was it was obvious. Same thing with Mary. Same thing with Shavi Joseph. You knew that was the guy. And I don't think the refs have that guy right now. No, and uh, we talked a lot last year about lack of leadership when this team was struggling. You know who was going to be that guy, and nobody nobody really stepped up. Even you know Gonzalez when he was captain. Um, I, I don't know. Just like you said, they didn't have that guy in the way that they have in the past. Um, but like you mentioned, De La Maya was a guy who was captain with his team, and I think it's tough for a guy to come in from another league and join a new team and instantly be made captain. Um, it's not you know something that you see too frequently unless they're you know massive big name star. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if down the road he gets that that role and Kowalski, another guy who played captain at his, at his old team, um, and it, so it, it's it's somebody that. Um, you know, again, I don't think there's somebody on that roster that's a clear-cut choice, basically because De La Mea and Kowalski haven't been here that long, but the two of them have been captains at their club teams in the past, um, so it wouldn't surprise me to see that going forward. But you know, even if they're not captain, I think it was huge for the Revolution to get two guys like that that you know have taken on those leadership roles and that can help the team. Because again, like we've said, lack of leadership is something that you know whether true or not has seem to be an issue over the past few seasons with this team. When, when the chips are down, who's the guy that's going to, to lead this team forward? And we haven't really seen somebody step up for that role. So you know, how that plays going down the road uh, will be interesting. You know, if Lee Wynn happens to miss a game, um, my guess is that Chris Tierney will be the, the, the number two in the next, you know, they got to step up for that role for the time being. But um, you know, nobody based on last year uh, did enough leadership for this team. So it, it's, it's a, a, a tricky situation, um, but we've you know we've talked a lot about what the revolution can do with with who they do have. Um, what we haven't really touched on yet is if the revolution did enough in this off season, you know whether there's enough depth on this team. Um, you know the, the two major moves they've made, De La Maya and Anguilla, were 
uh, moves that I think everyone knew they had to make going into the offseason. You know, they lost Gonsalves, they hadn't replaced AJ Soares, and it was a clear uh, issue with the second center back. So they, you know, good on them. They went out and made those moves, and they got two experienced guys for those positions. But otherwise, they didn't really do too much. And I guess I'll start with Greg. But I, you know, do you think the Revolution did enough this offseason to to push themselves over the edge? I mean, you, I think you can make the case they're you know borderline playoff team now. Um, but uh, was there more the Revolution should have done? Uh, well, actually, I, I'm. Uh, you guys are are more skeptical about this team than I am. I actually predicted a third place uh, finish for That's the right. rest of this season. <laughs> I am very very high on this team. Um, I think last season uh, they were they finished seventh, but I, I I think there's just too much talent on the team for them to be a borderline playoff team. Obviously, I am in the minority, um, but. I think this off season they did what they needed to do and they, um, they needed to address the back line and those were their only major splashes. But um, I think the only criticism I have is that they don't, they didn't fill out their roster. There isn't a lot of depth there. And I think they could have gone out and signed some um, younger players that maybe they could develop more, um, you know, for, I think I know we've talked about uh, the Revs uh, releasing Jordan McCrary, who you know isn't going to be in the top eighteen. But was there really any harm keeping him around for another season? Um, I, I think that is kind of my main criticism that the Revs go into the season with only I think twenty three or twenty four players, um, and that may hurt them. But the guys they did bring in um, Brian Wright, uh, getting back Femi, um, bringing in their two center backs. Uh, I think those are all positive um, additions for the Revs. And I also think, too, in a way, and I think I talked about this on the first podcast, that um, I, I think the Revs made some decisions last year planning for 2017. And by that, I mean signing Cody Cropper and trading for Kai Kamara. I think they saw those as long-term moves that would improve the team long-term. Uh, and I think they're going to see some long-term benefits from it this season that they didn't necessarily see it. Uh, they'll see long-term gains instead of short-term games from those transactions. So um, I think they had a, a good off season. I'm not sure what else they could have done or who else they could have moved other than really kind of build the depth at the bottom of the roster and maybe get some, some pieces that could uh, help them out, uh, uh, you know, as sub impact subs or during times of inter- injury. Before I get to Brian, I wanted to build on that. You mentioned Femi and Brian Wright. Um, you know, Femi, a guy they brought back. Brian Wright, a guy they, they drafted. Um, what surprised me in this first game is that neither of those two guys were on the bench. I think all of us expected them to have at least one of those two guys to have some contribution this season. But, you know, here you were in the first game of the season, and you had Javon Watson, London Woodbury, Josh Smith on the bench. So, you know, three defenders, um, three guys that play center back and right back. Uh, but then you didn't have a backup forward other than Teal Bunbury, who's you know been playing more as a midfielder on this team. Um, and you know, a game on the road where you go down a goal, there weren't many offensive substitutions they could make, and we saw that. You know, when Lee Wynn got hurt, they brought on Kobayashi and you know shuffled things around. And then Javon Watson was was you know defensive guy was one of their subs they made to try to switch up the formation. Um, and then Teal Bunbury, the the one truly offensive guy they had in the bench, didn't come on to the 82nd minute, which I think shows a little bit where he's fallen on the depth chart. Um, but I think that speaks to the lack of depth on this team is that they don't trust guys like Femi and Brian Wright, uh, surprisingly, to to even be on the bench in a game like this and instead load up with, with three defenders and you know, an extra two defensive midfielders and a, really a lack of, of offensive depth. But I'll, I'll let Brian give his thoughts on, on what this team is in the offseason and the depth issues. But that, that, to me, was something that was surprising in the opening game and um, maybe speaks to, to depth. And I don't know if Femi... Didn't get much preseason action, so maybe he's struggling with an injury or something. But uh, that was kind of shocking to me that in this game you don't have another backup forward on the bench. Yeah, I would say uh, you know I would say that you know they they definitely addressed they addressed their their most pressing needs, which which was center back. So I think that was that was a win by them. But aside from that, if we think about if they had to play the game today, let's think about three. They would be missing three guys. They could be they could have been theoretically missing three guys. They could have been missing win. They they could have been missing Harvo, and they could have been, and they would have definitely been missing Knighton, who was on the on the injury report with a concussion. So there you, you have nineteen players. You have nineteen players available, uh, and so basically one guy does not play today. If if 
all three guys weren't able to go today. So to me, that's that, and that's after only one game of the season. Like, what's going to happen when these and guys? That's not a very playing? long injury list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's going to happen when they start playing like midweek games? And what's going to happen when they start having open cup? I mean, that's that's my biggest question. I know that, and somebody needs to explain to me because I am I I will candidly admit that I am utterly lost on the idea of quote unquote roster flexibility when you have seven open roster spots. Like I don't. I don't get it. This is a thirty-four. This is a thirty-four game season plus open cup. I I don't get how it, it's to me. It's the exact opposite. It's ro- roster inflexibility when you already have three guys who are on the injury report and it's only game two. Like it's only week two of the season and you have like basically one guy who's not going to be on the eighteen. I mean that to me that that's 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 preposterous. That's preposterous. That's that goes that this is first. This is first division soccer. This is not. <laughs> This is not like uh, you know amateur. This is not amateur soccer. This isn't like getting the guys together and playing playing in the backyard. This is this is supposed to be top level soccer. And the fact that they're already this sh- that they're this shallow this early in the season is just uh, you know kind of speaks to the the to the fact that they didn't they didn't finish doing their jobs during the off season. They didn't finish putting together the roster, in my opinion. Well, and what's what's there to be lost by signing you know a college age you know somebody that just graduated from college. To a non-guaranteed minimum salary contract, and then if, you know, if it doesn't work out for a few months, you you know you cut them, and you haven't really lost very much at all, and you still have that roster flexibility. Mm-hmm. And and besides the points, twenty-three players have seven open roster spots right now. So if they, you know, I understand in the past they've you know, maybe wanted to keep a deep their deep one of the DP slots open so they can sign a guy halfway through the year and take half the hit rather than the full hit and have that flexibility. But that shouldn't stop you from you know signing a couple guys that. Uh, you know, maybe were undrafted players or players that were drafted that other teams, you know, didn't didn't want, and signing them for for minimum salary and hoping that maybe they turn things around and work out. And what's I mean, we talked about it, and and uh, but Napa Matsopo, I'm probably mispronouncing that horribly, and I apologize, I'm butchering his name. But their second round pick goes into training camp, didn't have an impressive training camp. I understand that, and you know they release him, but. I feel like if you spend a second round pick on a guy, you know, give him more than three weeks if you have the roster flexibility. I, I they've I don't want to say they gave up on him, but I, I don't see the reasoning behind letting go so many trialists and so many. There isn't an extensive cost to that, um, and you can release them in the middle of the season. It seems like they're just keeping these roster spots open to sign players, but I'm not sure who they're signing. Um, uh, it's very confusing. Well, what, what does it say about, you know, we talk a lot about their academy system, and I think we maybe give it too much credit sometimes, but what does it say about their academy system that here they have seven open roster spots and there's not one graduate from their academy um, that would fit into one of these roster spots and would even be worth a flyer for a minimum salary? I, it was, as much as we've talked about, you know, the good things they've done with their academy, they've still only produced three MLS players from their academy. You know, Dallas, people will talk about how they sign too many guys and a lot of them don't pan out. Yeah, okay, fine. But the Revolution have still only produced three guys. And meanwhile, they have seven open roster spots. So I don't know, I don't know what, what you think, Brian, but is that is that a bit of a you know sign that maybe their academy's not as good as it's made out to be? Yeah, I think for all the talk about like the academy, and I'm not saying that you know they, they haven't produced quality players. I mean, obviously, you know, Caldwell and Fagundes have been you know, integral parts of the team for the last three years together, three or four years together. And it's just, you know, you, you, you kind of expect to see more. I mean, this is, I, if, if my math is correct, this is going to be that I think they're in their 10th year or ninth year of the Academy and they've produced three players like in those nine or 10 years. I mean that, I mean, I get it that they're, that they stand the conservative side. They're not like Dallas and that they, you know that they're that they're liberal liberal with giving out you know contracts to to uh, you know to academy players. You know I get it. I get I get the I get the reason why you don't want to you know burn some guys out. But at the same time, I mean you know it's this is almost ten years into this into the academy, and you only you've only produced three players, two of which one of which is has not even proven himself, although he does have potential. And in, in Zachary Aravo, um, you know, kind of speaks to. You know, maybe like you had said, maybe things aren't as uh, maybe things aren't as promising as as we're allowed to believe sometimes. Um, you know, so I think I don't know. I just think that you know, like like Greg said, you know, when when you draft a guy like Matt Soso like in the second round and you basically let him go, you, you know, 
I'll actually go one step further, Greg, and say I think they did give up on him. I think, you know, they they pretty much said we we don't have any plans for you, and if you can't fill, you know, that many roster spots or at least a, a chunk of those roster spots during a time of the year when basically guys are battling for spots and you basically have your choice of whoever you want um, before the USL and before the NASL season starts. I don't know. I think it's kind of an indictment on your ability to build the rosters, uh, you know, if I'm being honest. As part of that, they feel they, they screwed up with Michael Gamble last year when they signed him and released him in June. But also, what does that say about their drafting lately? Is that you know, their second-round picks exactly. are both complete busts and couldn't even make it a season. And then their first-round pick last year is, is gone. Um, you know, we gave them a lot of credit for you know in the 2000s when they drafted so many good players, the Twelmans, Dempsey's, Joseph, you know, so many good guys, Pat Noonan, so many good guys back then. Um, you know, even more recently, a guy like Andrew Farrell, Kellen Rowe, but lately it's been a disaster. And you know, yeah, the draft is less important, but uh, it's you know when you have all these empty roster spots, you'd hope you get something out of the draft, and they've been getting absolutely nothing from the draft in recent years. Well, uh, well, they got Fe- and uh, but on the flip side of the coin, they got Femi and and Joshua Smith is holding down a roster spot, and he was a toss away fourth round pick. Um, the draft is, seems to be the more and more it goes on, it, it seems like a total crapshoot where you know first round picks are out of the league in two or three years, but there's some you know a random third or fourth rounder that somehow finds their way onto the field. Um, I don't know if that's a product of the Revs or if it's just maybe MLS teams just aren't able to scout and there isn't much emphasis put on the draft and it's kind of random. Oh, the, and the, but in theory, the the reason the draft is, which kind of goes back to the earlier point, in theory, the reason the draft is less important is because academy systems have become more important. So yes. when you look at the revolution yes. and their ability to, in the past, get you know, sometimes, in some cases, get two starters occasionally out of the draft we've seen back in the 2000s. Um, in theory, you replace that with your good academy system and they haven't done that. So, when the academy is not producing anybody, um, and, and again, with the exception, notable exceptions of, of Caldwell and Fagundes, both of whom were several years ago now, because um, we still haven't seen what Haribo can do. Uh, again, the draft is, is still important in that sense, um, but they're getting not much out of either of them, again, with the exception of Femi and, and who knows what Josh Smith and Brian Wright will turn into. Um, way too early to, to, to say anything about those guys. But you know, that's, that's where a lot of the depth issues come from, is that they're not getting anything. Um, from either of those two areas these past couple seasons. Yeah, and I, and and just to kind of jump in, you know, I'm trying to think of like the drafts of the last few years, and I, you know, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to think of the last time they drafted someone who became a starter, and the only person I can think of, the most recent person I can think of, is Barrel. Mm-hmm. After that, they drafted, you know, they drafted Newman, and he really never he never turned into really a starter. They drafted Mullins, who was. You know, showed promise of a starter, and then obviously went on to do and went on to become successful after he locked down. But aside from that, you know, if we're talking about the net hall, they haven't drafted a starter. They they don't have any starters from their draft since Andrew Farrell. I mean, that's that's you know, like you said, like if you're not going to build from the draft, then build you have to build from your academy, or vice versa, or or or, or a little bit of both. And they haven't really done either in the last in the last four drafts. I mean, that's that, that kind of speaks to their inability. To, uh, to 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 find young talent. I mean, yeah, sure. You have you find your uh, you find your femmies and you find your Josh Josh Smiths, but neither one of them has proven themselves as starters yet. And who's to say that they will ever become starting caliber caliber players? So it's it's pretty, or or even Brian Wright for that matter. I know that you know he's on the team and he was signed to an MLS contract ahead of time, but um, it kind of speaks to their to to there being a lot more misses than hits. In the last uh, in the last few years, yeah, it, it absolutely does. And again, um, you know, Farrell was a great pick, and he was, uh, you know, the first pick. They traded up to get that pick, so exactly. Uh, you, yeah, it, it's it's fine to give them credit for that, but when you're picking drafting number one, it's a bit harder to miss. And anything they've had since the past number one since then, you know, hasn't worked out long term. Um, so that's you know that's where the the depth issue comes in, and uh, it's. Yeah, they need to be able to find a way to have more than 23 guys on a 30-man roster uh, at, at the start of the season. Because to me, it just makes no sense. Like you put, pointed out earlier, with three injuries, they're down to you know 19, potentially 19 players that they would have available for the game this weekend had, had it gone on, uh, which <laughs> really is, is not, uh, to, to me, not acceptable for a professional club at this level and, and at this point in the league's history. 
it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but there was one last issue that I know Brian mentioned as before before we did this podcast as a, as a topic that that's worth talking about, and that is what is what what does happen to this formation when Kuasi returns? Um, he's obviously not 100% fit yet. Um, maybe with two more weeks, he'll be ready to start. I don't think he'll be 90 minutes fit in this next game. And I, I think in Dallas, it might be a tough ask to, to give him his first start there. Um, but what does happen when he's back? Um, you know, are we going to see Caldwell move to the bench or are we going to see a formation change? Um, it, it seems like Kawasi is a guy that is capable of contributing a little bit on offense too. And maybe more of a, of a defensive midfielder that could be a you know, two-way box-to-box midfielder. And if they play this, this diamond and want to be a little bit more defensive, uh, I think you could still play a, a 4-4-2 with both Caldwell and Kawasi. Um, but I'm curious what both of your thoughts are and, and how this formation shakes up when Kawasi, who as a DP you have to expect is going to be starting when he's, when he's 100%. Um, but there's some decisions to make there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I... I, I, it, I, I can't envision it's hard for me to envision a scenario where Kawasi where where I'm sorry where heaps puts Caldwell on the bench uh, just mm. because I think he has a lot invested in Caldwell I think his team has invested a lot in Caldwell and they really believe in him um but I think there may time there may come a time where if they're going to stick with the 4-4-2 I mean even if you keep Kwas even if you keep Caldwell and Kwasi on the field you have to take off who do you take off you take off Rowe I mean, do you take off Fagundes? Like, I, it's hard for me to see. Like, I could maybe see, you know, them putting Caldwell in a more, you know, having having Kwasi more as your number eight, but you still have to take off some, and, and having Caldwell as your six, but you still have to take off somebody else. And, you know, I mean, granted, this is all assuming everyone stays healthy, and obviously we've, we've seen that nobody stays healthy throughout the entire the, – the, 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 the 11 doesn't stay healthy throughout the entire course of the year, so there may be some opportunities – where maybe it does work, maybe they, they do find a way to put Caldwell and Kwasi on the on the field at the same time without really anyone being demoted or dropped. But um, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, when when if everyone's healthy, I would have to assume that Caldwell gets uh, gets put on the bench. And if that's the case, then I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> it, it, hopefully hopefully Kwasi knows how to defend really really well because. Um, Caldwell's been their kind of safety blanket with uh, with Tierney pushing up, getting in those crosses. So it'll be inter- it'll be an interesting decision that'll have to be made, you know, in the next few weeks. Yeah, I, I have the same uh, reservations that Brian has. I can't imagine Caldwell being benched. Um, he doesn't. He, he's not a bench player. He should be starting. He should be in the lineup every game. He can play. Um, I, I don't know who takes the fall for Kwasi, but I can't imagine it's going to be called well. Um, I could see them going back to a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-5-1 if um, the 4-4-2 doesn't work out. But then that begs the question, well, who, you know, then Aguadella or Kamara has to come off or, um, yeah, I, I don't know who takes the fall when Kwasi comes back. I guess Caldwell is the, easiest answer because you don't have to shake up everything and um you know they play the same position but uh, I, I just can't see Caldwell being taken off the field um it may come down to who's healthy um it may come down to someone is traded mid-season to address another area um it, I'm not totally sure what happens it, it, it's uh, there's really no good option uh, when Kawasi comes back. And that's really sad that we're talking about a DP coming back and we're not exactly sure where he fits in. Well, when you mentioned, when Brian mentioned Scott Caldwell um, in, you know, potentially being untouchable with what, what, what the team has put into him, uh, it brings me back to what we saw at the start of last year, which was a big surprise to me. I remember in 2015, he was named the team MVP. And then 2016, he started the season on the bench. Um, and that was kind of a shock to me. And I think pretty quickly it became apparent that he needed to be starting and he started you know, every game to finish out the season for the most part. Um, but maybe Heaps doesn't view him as untouchable as some of the fans might, um, given that, again, 2015, you know, was team MVP had a phenomenal year. And then 2016 opening day found himself on the bench. Um, I think, again, his standing has only gone up from what we've seen from the past year. And 
the point that you make about him you know, being the safety blanket for Chris Tierney is, is a big one because he does that so often when Tierney gets caught forward, stepping in and, and playing a huge role. And I thought he had, a, I thought Caldwell had a good first game. Um, you know, I'm a guy that loves passing accuracy, and he was over 90% passing accuracy, which he normally is, um, which is also a product of him not making too many risky passes going forward. Uh, but still, a good number to see from him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult. Um, there's some moving parts in this midfield. I think there's been times in the past where you know Kellen Rowe or Diego Fagundes goes on a really cold streak, and you know a couple years ago you had Teal Bunbury who at those times could step in, but since then he he really hasn't looked good. So you know maybe that's an option there is to to take one of those guys out and put Kwasi there if one of them isn't playing well. Um, I I think there's enough minutes to go around as the season goes forward, but it's it's something that Hughes is going to have to to figure out. And again. You know, we've seen in the past that you know, heaps, maybe not heaps, but the team hasn't necessarily handled guys too well when they've you know, been conflicts over things. We had Sagan Salves and Lee Wynn both have you know, issues over contracts, and it seemed to affect their play at the time. Um, so it, if, if the season progresses and there's issues with minutes, um, that's something that we have to watch very carefully to see how this team handles. Yeah, and I would just say I would just say that I, I do have questions about whether or not Kawasi will be fit like at 100% at any point this year, I still think that that knee is going to, I think they're going to be very, very careful with him. And, you know, he may, they say that maybe he's a few weeks away, but I think they're going to be very, very like, you know, realistically, they're going to, they should be um, careful with him because they've invested so much in him. But um, I do have concerns about him, you know, staying healthy throughout the course of an entire year and also especially on the turf. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a good problem to have when you do have a guy like Caldwell right there who can play the same spot and who knows, maybe they put platoon and like you, like you guys had both, both mentioned, you know, there's minutes, there'll be minutes to share, you know, once we get into the, uh, once we get into the thick of the season. Um, but I do have concerns about his ability to stay healthy about him, his ability to stay on the field, um, you know, for a large portion of the year. Once he's healthy, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a key spot to watch because they don't have Kofi anymore, who um, yeah. was such a key to this team last year when he was healthy and played such a big role. Um, and obviously, don't have Jones anymore, who was before that was was the guy for that role. And as much as Con- Caldwell contributes to this team, um, he doesn't have the impact that a Jermaine Jones has certainly going forward. And the impact where he can really change the flow of a game offensively as well as defensively. He's a great guy defensively and a you know, smart passer as far as not giving the ball over, but he's definitely not a guy that you see you know, creating these chances moving forward. And I think the hope is that Kowalski, in, in some sense, can be more of that guy um, from that role. But it, it, it's, it's, again, it's a good, thing, a good problem to have because it's a problem that the Revolution don't have in a lot of other positions where they have you know, guys fighting for minutes, which um, in Jay Heaps' tenure early on, he talked about how important that was. And okay, going back to the 23-man roster, there's not a lot of that this year, but that's one spot where, where there will be, so... Um, that'll be a fun thing to watch going forward. Uh, but I do want to wrap things up. Um, Revolution, again, off this weekend due to the, the postponement because of the cold. Um, but they will travel to Dallas next weekend for a very difficult game against FC Dallas, who um, we talked about teams that have been able to build from their academy. They've you know, been very successful signing guys. Some of them haven't panned out, but overall, a very good job there, as well as a very good job scouting South America. And that's why they're in a position right now um, where they're one of the best teams in the league. So I'm curious, before I wrap it up, predictions, early predictions, too early predictions because we don't know what the injury situation is going to be. <laughs> but, but for that game, um, disappointing loss for the Revolution in the opener and now not a home game here. So I think there's you know, some, eff- some importance that the Revolution don't come away with two losses to start the season. And it's going to be very difficult going into Dallas. What, Greg, what's your take on, on that match and what we can expect? Yeah, I don't think there's much more to be said. It's a really difficult game. Um, I guess it's good that they're getting it out of the way early in the season, um, and it'll be a it'll test that defense. Um, you know, one one thing you can say about the Colorado game is that Colorado doesn't put up many goals. So now we'll be able to see, um, you know, how how that back four stands up against maybe the best offense in the league. Um, but I, I don't think they're going to get any points. I think they're going to start the season 0-2. Um, I, this is not an official prediction. I'm 1-0 on nailing the scores perfectly so far this season. You got more time than Never gotten one right before, but I'm 1-0 in 2007, so I'm on a bit of a hot streak. 
but I would uh, I'd say it's probably going to be a three one ish type game where uh, probably maybe not similar to the the U.S. Open Cup, uh, which was four one I think. Um, it, it, there was a lot of goals scored by Dallas and not as many by New England. I remember that, but uh, it'll probably be a two goal uh, victory for Dallas. That's my prediction. I'll also go with a two goal victory, but I'm going to call my prediction two nothing. Um, I think the only thing that helps the Revs is that they have them is that Dallas has a midweek game. They have midweek Champions League game against Pachuca. So I think you know, given the fact that the Revs will be as fresh as they'll they'll probably ever be at this point in the se- at any point in the season, um, and the fact that you know that uh, Oscar Perea will probably have to use some starters. Will probably have to use a lot of starters for that that Champions League game, I think, will help the Revs. Um, but it's not going to help them enough to to where they'll be able to get points from the game. So I'll say 2 nothing Revs. Um, and I think that some of their, especially if Wynn is not 100% yet, I think their offensive their offensive woes will continue. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about that that Champions League game in the middle there because that certainly will have an impact. A very difficult game. Um, and what we're arguing in the semifinals of Champions League, and at least for Dallas, they're at home in that game, so that will help them. It won't be a tough traveling schedule, but Wednesday to Saturday is, is never easy. Um, so that plays in the, in the Revolution's favor. And I know there's you know, plenty of reason to, to call it a good thing that the Revolution has this extra time to prepare. Um, but for, for me, it's still early in the season. It's, it's not great to have such a gap between games and not have a chance to, to quickly turn around and try to pick up after that difficult game um, and build on fitness. Um, so factors both ways in this one, um, but I also cannot see the revolution coming out of here with anything but a loss and it's not too much of an indictment on the revs because dallas you know remember we're the supporter shield winners last year and phenomenal team and um you know an mls cup favorite this year so uh it's, it's going to be tough I, I think it'll also be a, a two-goal loss um but and I, I like greg's prediction 3-1 i'll go a little bit crazy and say 4-2 because both of these teams uh i think the revolution's offense is better than they showed last week um, but I think their defense is still too fresh and too new to handle an offense like like Dallas's, which is on enough on a completely another level than what Colorado's was and what they saw last weekend. So this game could be very interesting and and very high scoring and not very cold like today's game would have been being down in Dallas. Um, so I, I'm I'm excited for the game, um, if if partly to see one of the best teams in the league in, in, in Dallas and and what they have to offer. And they'll be in a lot more closer to midseason form, having you know, started Champions League up in, in, in February. Um, so that they'll be a fun team to watch. Um, hopefully, we'll have a chance to record another podcast after that game and, and see where the Revolution are and analyze that defense. But thanks again for for joining us today, both uh, Brian O'Connell and, and Greg Johnstone, both from New England Soccer Today. Uh, to both of you, want to give out your Twitter handles in case anyone wants to follow you on there, Brian? Sure. Uh, my Twitter hand, my Twitter handle is at Brian O'Connell twenty one. Um, and actually tonight I'll be, uh, I'll be covering the, the Kansas City Dallas game, getting a little bit leg up on what Dallas will be, uh, what Dallas will look like for next week. Um, but I'll be covering that game tonight with, uh, with no rest game today. Nice. How about you, Greg? And you can follow me at, uh, G Johnstone 12, and I will probably be retweeting Simpsons quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and of course, you should follow us at Any Soccer Today, and uh, I'm at Sean L. Donahue. And Brian's been producing a lot of great content for New England Soccer Today. That if you haven't checked out, uh, make sure to check out. There's plenty of interesting stuff to get you through this revelous weekend early on in the season that you weren't expecting. Uh, but again, thanks for joining us, and we'll hopefully be back on here soon. Uh, this was Revolution Recap. <laughs>